different podcasts this is your host aaron smith and this is episode 19 and we're going to be talking about a special subject today and it is non-sibling adhd and advice for parents and non-adhd children i'm here with my guest dr sharon celine she's in private practice and is a top expert in how adhd learning disabilities and mental health issues affect children teens and families her unique perspective, namely growing up in a household with a sibling who wrestled with untreated ADHD, combined with decades of clinical expertise, assists her in guiding families through the maze of emotions, conflict, stress, towards successful dialogues and interventions and connection. She has a forthcoming book called What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and Life. And this has been heralded as an invaluable resource, and she addresses many topics in the book, talks about tools to help families improve communication, reduce conflict, and um, she's also a top lecturer, workshop facilitator, and she speaks around the nation and even internationally. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. I also want to say one thing about this book, because I'm... I. You know, I haven't read the book. It's, I haven't seen the actual copy yet, but I'm excited to see that when it does come out. What I do like about what you said here, talking about your book and the perspective that you took, I'm very interested in the fact that you actually have interviews from ADHD kids mm -hmm. and look at their perspective, kids and teens, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a pretty rare thing that not many people out there, there's lots of resources for parents, mm -hmm. but actually having the view and the empathetic understanding from the kids themselves who are struggling with ADHD, that's, that's pretty new. I don't know a lot of books that actually do that. So I, I really think this is going to be an invaluable resource. So um, I hope so. <laughs> and I know you've been working really hard on it too. And, and you know, you, you said there was a little snafu here and there that you we're able to work through. Right. Well, you know, just writing a book is challenging. And sometimes you think you're going in one direction and then you have to regroup and go in another. And, um, but um, things worked out really well. And I'm very excited about this book. And I hope we'll talk after it comes out as well. Um, yeah. uh, mostly because I feel like um, kids have opinions about themselves and their lives. And the more that they're included in whatever a plan is that's made, the better the chances of success of that plan are. And, um, you know, as a psychologist, I have been working with families since the beginning. Um, I'm trained as a family therapist. And so that perspective has guided me in all of the work I've done. Um, and I think that that um, affects how I've approached this book and why I wanted to interview the kids themselves because I, I think that if we come, if we as adults come from a place of compassion and working with collaboration um, and also celebrating and noticing 
efforts towards change, then we have a much better opportunity to both teach skills that kids need to learn, improve their self-esteem, and keep peace in the house, which is pretty important. Yeah, and that can be pretty challenging, especially if you're in a family that has you know, one child that has ADHD and, and other children or, or another child that doesn't have ADHD. And I want you to talk a little bit about just from your own background, being a child um, who do- didn't have ADHD and having a brother who is, uh, you didn't find out, and this is very interesting, you said you didn't find out that he had ADHD until you were in your 30s, right? Right. So, you know, um, I've since found out that um, there is um, ADHD actually on, you know, on my, on my father's side of the family. You know, several uh, cousins or cousins' children have it. Um, but at the time when I was growing up, you know, in the 70s, ADHD was not a, a common uh, common diagnosis. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing, you know, it wasn't really understood. Um, mental health issues for children were really sort of something that um, was, was not in the common parlance as much as it is today. And so, you know, if a child, you know, saw a therapist, it was because they were depressed or they were really anxious or they had an eating disorder or they were failing out of school. You know, it was, um, which is some of the reasons kids go to uh, therapy today, but it was more the severity that led someone to, to therapy rather than today. Um, you know, I think that if, if there's a moderate sort of sense of, of symptoms or, or, or discomfort, people are, you know, kind of more willing to take their children. Yeah, um, I think there's like more preventative measures and proactive measures in this day and age and it's absolutely back then i think there was a lot more stigma around you know who gets therapy and who needs therapy and that kind of stuff right exactly and 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 adhd and even learning disorders were just not that well understood and so for in my family um you know what was it was acknowledged that people were hyper but there was, it was just like, oh yeah, they're hyper. Like there was nothing you can do about that. And there was no link between hyperactivity and emotional volatility and anxiety and, um, you know, sorts of desires for controlling some things. Like my brother used to um, really be very upset if his socks didn't stay up. I mean, he would have a complete meltdown if his socks didn't stay up. And, and the rest of us in the family were like, oh, my God, you know, just pull up your socks. Like, it's not such a big deal. And my father would lose his temper, and my mother would try to help my brother, and my brother would be upset. And I would just be like, sort of out in, like, the interlands thinking, please, could we just go to the restaurant? Or could we just, you know, do whatever the activity is? Um, so today I think it would be so different, you know, and I think part of the reason that I have embarked on this, you know, becoming a family therapist and ultimately, you know, sort of focusing my practice on, you know, working with people who have ADHD and all the coexisting kinds of um, diagnoses or challenges that come with it is a result of what my role was growing up in a family where um, my brother and, and possibly one of my parents, I, I don't know, I have my suspicions, um, 
possibly my father. And I recently found out um, that my mom um, basically uh, probably had a nonverbal learning disability. Um, she told me that when uh, a friend of hers went to graduate school to become a psychologist, she tested my mom and um, her verbal skills were really high and her math skills were really low. And, um, you know, my father had his own academic challenges and um, yeah. he's the king of malaprops. So, you know, I can't say yet. Well, ADHD, yeah. right, it, it runs in families. There's, right. you know, this high genetic heritability factor that we know about but mm -hmm. back then that wasn't you didn't know about that stuff that's like newer research that has come out um you know in the last you know 10 to 15 years um really showing that there that it runs in families and it persists through adulthood um for many folks that's right and um and so you know i i because my parents were never really tested or evaluated in any way i can only speculate but what i can say is that you know i um i witnessed a, a sibling really struggling and i think that what was interesting for me because each of my parents has executive functioning challenges in different ways and like my mother has really terrible um uh, trouble with being on time. She's constantly trying to pack too much in. And she also, you know, doesn't always have great verbal impulse control. So she'll have a thought and it'll come out of her mouth. I thought that was normal. Like, I thought that's how you act in the world. And it wasn't until I kind of got together with my husband. He's like, you know, you can actually not say what you're thinking. It's like, really? Wow. Okay. You know? <laughs> So, uh, what was it? What was it like when you were growing up with your brother? Were there a lot of comparisons that happened, or did you also feel like, um, like he got any kind of special treatment, or like the attention was turned on to him way too much at some points because he's he's someone that that needed more of, the, of that attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit how that sure. dynamic um, worked out. I think, I think there were a lot of comparisons, unfortunately for him, towards me. I mean, one of the ways the I coped was, comparisons. well, like, you should be more like your... You should be more like your sister, you know, and I worked really hard to maintain the perfection standard that I needed to live with. Um, and that was one of the ways that I sort of distanced myself, you know, from him and from the um, Were you really like a good student? Oh, I was definitely the perfect child. I was. Well-behaved, good student. I, I was well-behaved. I was a good student. Um, it wasn't until I went to college that I really rebelled. Um, and then uh, often I, is the case, right? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it wasn't do, do, do terrible things, but um, I, I went to Brown and um, after my first year, I got involved at the end of my first year in a production of Hair that was a student-directed um, production. And then I took a leave of absence from school because we were performing in Cambridge for six months. And that was a big to-do in my family. <laughs> Because what you might, doing? oh my God, what is she doing? And oh my God, there is a nude scene in that movie, so in that play, um, in the musical. And so, yeah, so that was a whole thing. Um, but for my brother, so I think he, he lived a lot with comparisons because I didn't have the same kinds of challenges that he had. Um, and that was hard for him. It was hard on our relationship. Um, 
and you know I, how, I how was it how was it hard on him you think I think it was hard on him because you know like many kids with ADHD they're aware that something is different about them and um, and they can't really control it you just they just don't have the frontal the, the development of the frontal lobe and the executive functioning skills to be able to mo monitor themselves in in ways that kids who don't have ADHD can. And so there was a lot of focus on what he was not, mm. you know, what he was doing wrong and what he wasn't. And, um, and there was a lot of sort of this kind of dynamic between my parents and my brother about my brother, you know, and, yeah. his, and there was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of arguments. <laughs> there was yelling. And, yeah. you know, what I did to try to, cope with that was to just be as good as possible did he do you think that that affected his self-esteem absolutely absolutely and and, and in in long in long acting ways hmm. and, and in, in negative ways right absolutely yes um and so what would you recommend like if you could give advice to your mother uh -huh. or father now with mm -hmm. your clinical experience and your experience growing up being mm -hmm. a sibling and seeing these comparison traps and seeing how it kind of negatively affected him but it also set these very high standards and like kind of boxed you into this role too mm -hmm. i mean you're the model kid you're the one that's supposed to do everything right and have good grades and you can't get out right. the box exactly you take a semester off of college and go do this hairspray right <laughs> right you're in a production of hair right um you know i think that what i would say to my parents i mean if they were raising us today it would be a very different story and you know what i would say is you know please get please get him evaluated um please think about medication if if you're willing to do that with your own values please um let's get some family counseling on setting up routines and um and systems that will help him succeed and meet goals treat treat your children similarly and also differently so for example if you're setting up a structure on on chores it's a structure for both kids right but the rewards are different because they have to be age appropriate and based on their ability to achieve different things so you know if it's a point system one child is going to get one set of circumstances and one child's going to get another that are really geared to who they are not to some um, kind of idea that you think kids should have yeah, um, this is an important point because I think that there's a, a lot of parents know about reward charts or star charts uh -huh. and, and uh -huh. creating structures it's uh -huh. it's heard a lot but I think it's not really done it oftentimes you know parents inadvertently make mistakes when uh -huh. they're trying to implement it uh -huh. um, and some of the things that I see in my practices one when they're developing the kind of rewards or goals or even some of the tasks that are put onto that list uh -huh. there's no collaboration with their child often mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important piece is that you have to really bring the kid into the discussion and draw out what are what are the kind of rewards and incentives that are going to work in this plan for you or what are these points you know mm -hmm. leading up to what are these stars mm -hmm. leading up to 
uh -huh. um, and getting their take on it. Would you agree with that kind of? A hundred percent. The other thing I wanted to also say, if I were going to speak to my parents, is that uh, my, you know, we run a little anxious in my family. And so, um, and particularly for um, my, you know, make sure that there was some good family counseling in there to address some of the anxiety. I think some of the anxiety is for kids with ADHD is, is directly related to the constant feedback that they get about doing this or doing that, changing this or changing that. They're, they're waiting for that, that sort of shoe to be to drop on a regular basis. And that keeps us a, a level of hypervigilance that, you know, perpetuates anxiety. Um, so I just- It's not healthy for development either, it's, right? it's not healthy for development. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a, a really important thing. In terms of, um, structures and, and, and programs and plans, I, I think it is essential, even for kids as young as five, they have an idea about themselves. They have an idea about their world. It's not the last word, but it, it should be a word in the conversation. And as they get older, it has to be, you know, at least a sentence or two in the conversation, you know what I'm saying, you know, metaphorically. Um, because they, if their participation um, creates buy-in, and buy-in creates cooperation. And for kids with ADHD, um, they, they want that cooperation. They want to participate because they spend so much time in their lives listening to what they're not doing, right? Yeah. And worrying about what they're going to do next that is going to be the wrong thing. And so that really directly affects the self-esteem that they grow up with. And so in families where you have one child with ADHD and one child who doesn't have ADHD, which is very, very common, um, you want to set up a, a general system. So for example, everybody has chores, but perhaps the ADHD child has, each child has, you know, the ADHD child who is 10 has three chores and the non-ADHD child who is 14 has maybe four chores or five chores. And the non-ADHD child who's 14 maybe gets, um, uh, you know, points for their chores and the ADHD child gets points for their chores too. But the things that they get with their points are, are, are you know, make sense in terms of their respective ages, their respective interests, and the privileges that are appropriate for a 14-year-old versus a 10-year-old. And right. where families often fall down are in these kinds of programs are they make the uh, um, chores or the activities too hard. Mm. And there's too many of them. So, so that they setting their they set failure. before you even start. You need to do these five chores every day. Okay, that's not realistic. Let's start with three chores and let's hope that two of those three chores get done. Right? Yeah. So if there's three chores and it's five days a week, that's 15 points. Out of those 15 points, what's a realistic amount that you think, ask the child, ask the parent you're actually going to be able to accomplish. This is the ADHD child, remember? Yeah. And also, can I just say here, I, mm -hmm. think, I think that like when they're designing these, these plans, right, mm -hmm. these, these structures and charts, mm -hmm. sometimes when they write those, those chores or write what it is, they're mm -hmm. so vague, like show respect. 
exactly you know your best behavior <laughs> like what does that mean right so nothing me, it means child, nothing it's it's like might as well just say you know some some kind of like foreign language because to them it right. seems like I, I don't know what that is. I mean, in, in exactly. a lot of parents think, well, I've told them five times, or I tell them every day the same thing. But if you want to see behavior change, you want to see them do something differently, you have to also, you know, show them or, or kind of guide them into what are the positive behaviors, right? Absolutely. And you actually want to see them do, not just criticize or point out what's going wrong. What, the charts cannot be... Um, geared towards avoidance of behaviors. Oh, um, no yelling. You're going to get a point if you don't yell. That, don't even bother with that. That's really useless. Don't hit your sister. Don't hit your sister. That's not going to work. The chart should be um, geared towards things that you actually want them to do. Come down for breakfast by 7.30, okay, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. uh, leave for school on time. Um, put your... Put your um, you know, pull the sheets up on your bed or whatever, whatever it is, you know, walk the dog. Um, those things uh, have to be on the chart, you know, yeah. clear and set the table, whatever it is that you want them to do. They actually should be concrete activities. Um, if you, and then when they do those concrete activities, your job as a parent, not only that they get the point and they should be, you know, you should do that together or have, you know, have them do the point, but for you to be able to say, good job setting the table. Like, wow. You know, you wrap the silverware in the napkin. That's cool. You know, like some, like instead of saying, Oh, why did you wrap the silverware in the napkin? I have to unwrap or, the silverware. Or right, it's about time or yeah, you should have done that. Of sure. course you should have done that. It's like, notice them a little bit. And I call that in my book celebration, that little bit mm -hmm. of noticing, encourages them to keep doing it right mm. so um make sure whatever program you have is posted i encourage parents to get a whiteboard you know get a big whiteboard because it's going to change right it gets boring if it's the same thing you have a kid with adhd change it up for the non-adhd kid those same things work well my my you know i have one colleague who says and when I, we, we, uh, who, who says to me, gosh, the work you do, it's like, you know, parenting on steroids. You're, you know, you're really helping parents. So the, you know, the kid who doesn't have ADHD will benefit from that also. You know, probably they could use, you know, reminding to make their bed or pick up their laundry from the floor of their room or whatever it is. The, that's the behavioral stuff. That's the thing that kids who are still concrete thinkers really can follow through on and accomplish. The interpersonal stuff, respect, language, you know, that could be one of the things, you know, going to school with no arguing, you get a point. That's mm -hmm. clear, right? But you better be really specific about what no arguing looks like because you may have one set of um, ideas definition. about uh, of ideas about what no arguing looks like, and your child may have something completely different. And yeah. so that has to be all laid out. I think one of the problems that parents run into is that they actually are thinking in their adult brains that making a lot of um, understandable but in general problematic assumptions about what their kids um, really. Uh, kind of grasp 
and can follow through on. And really, the clearer that you are, the better it is, no matter how redundant your 15-year-old thinks it is. And, you know, <laughs> say it anyway. Yeah. 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 I know it's expected, right? Mm -hmm. like kids will but you don't cause you, that. but you may know, but you're not doing it. So yeah. we're going to, or they may not want to admit they don't know or mm -hmm. something because of their own pride. Right. But it's, it's always good to, I think, like you're saying, just clarify it and just make it super crystal clear and don't mm -hmm. do it in a condescending way, but do it in a way that's just like, all right. So just, just to make sure. So when we leave town, here are the expectations. Here's what's, Right. Uh, for a teenager or something, right? Exactly. Well, we get in the car. <laughs> I expect you to, you know, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Okay. So what else do you want families to know about or, you know, like, sib like the sibling about non ADHD siblings? Yeah. Like yeah. What, else, what else is important? So I think the thing that I see a lot in my clients and that I actually experience some myself is that um, there's a lot of often attention around the ADHD child. Mm -hmm. Attention, um, and it's not off, I mean, it's sometimes it's positive, but a lot of times it's not, unfortunately. You know, the positivity ratio is three to one. And, you know, I would ask you or your viewers to think about, you know, that means three good things for every negative thing. I'll say that to parents in my practice and they'll just say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm doing 10 to one the other direction or five to one the other direction, yeah. right? And, and, why, and like, why do you think parents are, are doing, like, that's the, why do you think they get caught in this like cycle of, of kind of putting all the negative attention onto the kid? Mm. And and saying these things because I think most parents aren't trying to do this to no. be mean mm -mm. or no. you know harm their kids in some way. It's like, what do you think contributes to that? Parents want their kids to succeed. They want their kids to be the best they can be. And what happens is that um, most parents, myself included, as a parent, um, we you know, offer corrections to our kids, suggestions, hey, don't do it this way, do it this way, or don't say that, say this, because, you know, from our life experience, we believe that we actually know better, and many times we do, but what happens is what's heard is a lot of criticism, not, it's not heard as feedback, it's heard as you should, you should have, you must, and um, that doesn't actually help kids feel good about who they are and making their own decisions. And so we have to walk a really tough line as parents, figuring out how do we give, sometimes we have to say, sorry, you need to do this, period. Sometimes we have to say, hmm, let's talk about what you might have done that could have worked differently or better. And, and sometimes we need to say, why don't you tell me about how you think things went and listen, and then I'm going to give you some feedback about what I heard you say and what I observed. So there's a whole range of things that we have to dance between. And often, I see families where parents are so stressed between work demands, financial demands, um, family demands, wanting to do the best for their kids that they can, trying to keep up tech with technology and social media and blah, blah, blah. You know, people are overwhelmed. And so um, they're, they're, they're afraid more often than they would like to be. 
Um, so yeah. I think that in... Can I just for, say that... Yeah, that, please, go ahead. I think this is like really about like how do we deliver constructive feedback mm-hmm. versus turning that 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 feedback or or that correction that you're saying but doing it in a way that feels like criticism or negativity and i think that's particularly important for folks with adhd because mm-hmm. you know i i was a child with adhd growing up and i feel like you know in my own family sometimes you know even though my parents didn't mean to to say something in a negative way i was almost like hyper attuned to interpreting or hearing things negatively mm. and th- i think the same thing is is we hear the positive also mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but if you're hearing constantly like 10 negative things for one positive you mm-hmm. start tuning out that positive thing. and also the brain has a negativity bias you know, and I think, you know, that comes Survival, from right? exactly right. We survived in the jungle, right? So we had to like, listen for that tiger. And so we hear that negative really loudly and that goes in and we hear the positive really softly and it doesn't often go in. And so for, for non-ADHD kids and families, what they frequently see, and this happened in my family and I'm not super proud of that, is that I saw that my brother got a lot of negative attention and my parents attention right it's and my parents tried to do positive things but it was the negative attention that dominated and it was still attention and so there was a part of me that both felt like well whoa i'm gonna try to be perfect like i said to sort of avoid that but i also felt like well hello you know like you know what do i have to do to get attention and that you know and i did get attention so i don't want to say that i didn't but there is a challenge i think in families to to balance out where the energy in the family is going to um and and there's also a tendency i've seen in adhd families that sometimes the adhd child can be mean to the non-adhd child because perhaps there's a feeling of jealousy or of comparison. And so I see parents defend the non-ADHD child and, um, uh, you know, and again, sort of offer another correction to the ADHD child, like, you know, you need to be nicer to your sister or stop kicking your sister or why did you go into their, her, her room and empty out her drawers? You know, like there's this tough dynamic where, how do you balance even parenting? Yeah. So I think it's really complicated, both for the sibling and for the parents to, to be able to manage because they love their children, of course, and they want to treat their children, you know, evenly, right? But yeah, differently fairly. because kids are different. Fairly, right. Um, and and it, it can be very challenging because the behaviors of the ADHD child can be very provocative both for the parent for the, and for the non-ADHD sibling. Yeah. And then the parent of, might defend the non-ADHD sibling, which kind of results in a whole nother set of dynamics. Yeah, it can kind of, I think, wear down parents to a point where, you know, how many times do we have to tell, you know, Ben over here who with mm-hmm. ADHD, how many times do we have to tell Ben to stop this? Stop, stop, stop. Exactly. Do this, do this, do this. And then all of right. a sudden, then they're, you know, saying it and really, you know, yelling or they're, um, 
just stop it. What's wrong with you? Like, you know, it it gets Mm -hmm. to that point Mm -hmm. and it gets to that point a lot faster sometimes Mm -hmm. um, because ADHD kids do like, I think push buttons and stuff, but I also, I wanted to bring up because you told me. But not, not necessarily on purpose, right? It's just that, and, and, and they also have, I want to say, you know, one of the channels, it's impulse control. Exactly. But it's also emotional regulation. Like, um, you know, kids with ADHD have big feelings and they're not very skilled yet at managing those feelings. And so if they're kind of mad at their brother, they're just going to whack them maybe, you know, or say something mean to them. And it's not because it, because they're, they may have like big emotional feelings and they, that they, that they can't regulate. And then they have impulse control issues and boom, then you're in a situation. And And so you pointed out a story when you were preparing for the interview where you said that you were doing some modeling Mm-hmm. At the age of 15 for 17 right. magazine. Yep. And what happened with your brother? Because I think this was a. Well, okay. So I, I just want to say that I have a really good memory. Like, you know, like it's one of the things I pride myself on, you know, therapist, remember my own childhood, blah, blah. So um, uh, when my brother turned 50, that he, we had a, we had a um, party for him and he kind of went around the table. It was a family party and he was thanking everyone. And then he got to my father and he said, you know, something about my dad and how, you know, there was this incident when I, where he was, when I was modeling in, in, in 17 magazine and blah, blah, blah. And I had had no memory of that. So I'm going to tell you this story. So I was doing some modeling and I was in an advertisement in 17 magazine. I was 15. I was pretty excited, you know, it was a big deal at that time. Mm-hmm. and everyone in the family was really excited. And so um, I guess the magazine came while I was still at school, and he got home first, and he, um, he saw the magazine, he found the ad, and I got home from school, and I was, you know, just came home from school. I was pretty excited, and I, you know, walked in, and he said, 17, you know, your 17 magazine came. And I said, oh, really, really, where is it? And he said, it's over there. And then, like, he punched me in the nose, like, I don't even remember exactly what happened, but I remember he punched me in, my no- in the nose and I was like, oh my God, you broke my nose. And I called my mother who was at work, you know, 30 minutes away, my father who was at work 20 minutes away. And I, um, my, my mom, each of my parents are divorced. And so they each said, they each have said, oh no, I came home. Oh no, I came home. But what I do remember is that my dad came home and he kind of pushed my brother up against the wall and said, don't you ever hit your sister again. And so what was left from the memory of this was not that I was in Seventeen Magazine, but that my father came home from work, which was a rare occasion, and pushed my brother up against the wall. Uh, so, um, what do you think was going on through your brother's mind? Well, I asked him about that, and he said, "Well, you know, I was jealous. You were in Seventeen. You were getting all this attention. There it was." So he and he just kind of reacted in the moment, and yep and hit you right uh, and i think that this this kind of shows that like well he wanted some attention too so by acting out in that negative way he probably wasn't even thinking about the consequences or he wasn't even thinking about how it would hurt you he was a 12 year old boy you yeah. know he wasn't thinking about that he was mad you know and there was always a feeling and this is also what i was trying to say but not perhaps so clearly before i think in in families 
some families with an ADHD child and a non-ADHD child, there's a feeling sometimes that there's not enough attention to go around for the kids. Mm -hmm. And so the, the non-ADHD child may be attempting to do everything perfectly. Um, the ADHD child might be, uh, you know, trying to avoid things um, or hiding things or also trying to do things really well. Like there's just these dynamics where um, there's a feeling that there's just not enough uh, to go around. And, and I think that what would help families is having sort of less rigid roles. You know, everybody has good things. Everybody has challenges. And I have enough love for both of you. Yes. I, I like that. I, I think that's totally true that, you know, we can see positive qualities and we can see strengths, we can see talents and we can, you know, I, I think parents can, can work on expanding their view of their kids, you know, encompassing all of their qualities uh -huh. um, and see them as unique people um, and not, absolutely into well you're the good student and you're the artist or you're the musician and you're the you know clown or whatever right no that's exactly right i mean i also think that um you know one thing that is important is that it's important for siblings to have their own relationship and and one thing that i think is 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 a real kind of threat to that is when parents run interference, um, particularly in terms of protecting the, the child they perceive is the underdog mm. or they perceive is the victim. And, mm. you know, in, I, I think that was very, that was detrimental in my family that I think um, my parents said, you know, you and your brother need to be close and you and your brother need to be friends. But there wasn't, it didn't feel like that was a good idea because being friends with him meant I would also be getting into trouble, you know? And so, into the mud. exactly. And I think, um, you know, that was, a, that was a sad pattern that arose that has taken years for us to work on and try to undo. And so, you know, the questions that I often ask parents is, you know, if you're, children are if you're if one child is raising a voice at another child why do you need to come in and say something you know what is the boundary that you want to set around safety you know when do you need to intervene in sibling issues because they their ability to work things out themselves creates a foundation for their relationship later on mm. and if you're always coming in to run interference then they're not figuring out how to do that themselves. And then the relationship is now colored by your dynamic. Yeah. Um, Cause, cause so, kids need to learn how to, how to be, to like verbally express their feelings, uh -huh. work out problems. Uh -huh. work That's out right. Conflicts. And if uh -huh. they aren't able to do that with their own sibling, their brother, or sister, you know, how are they going to do that in other relationships, friendships, and, uh -huh. you know, intimate partnerships later on? Uh -huh. Because it's like, it starts there, right? If you can, exactly. If you can work stuff out and, and have a positive relationship with your sibling, you don't have to be best friends and you don't have to. That's you correct. Know, you don't have to right. always like your sibling, but if you can no. show love and respect and 
Uh work stuff out when there is a problem, Uh not just run to the parent that takes your side and then says, stop that. Don't treat your sister that way. Don't treat that's exactly right. Uh Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, I mean, for me, the barometer is safety, right? So, you know, I would encourage parents to think about what is your bottom line? You know, can you tolerate yelling um, or not? You know, can, for me, I feel like physical harm is never okay. So, and that's a rule, that's a family rule. We don't hit in this family. We don't kick in this family. Um, we don't bite top, in this family. from the top down. From the top down. And so. Not just don't hit your sister, but I get but to hit. I'm not hitting you either. That's right. We're not hitting. We don't hit in this family. And if that's the family policy, then that's the family policy. And then if that's happening, then you intervene. But for, you know, kids argue. That's what they do. That's what siblings do. Yeah. And, and they, there's, it, it changes so fast. You know, I see kids in my office in a, the course of 10 minutes arguing with each other. Then like the next, the next thing I know, they're like building a Lego castle, you know, and they, they haven't even, it means nothing to them. And the parents will try to get in and I'll say, wait, let them do it. You know, there's no harm that's happening here. Yeah. Let them work it out. That's, that's great. So right. um, I think we're getting to the end of the mm-hmm. interview, but I think this was really helpful and we've given a lot of great advice to Good. parents and to uh, families and to uh, non-ADHD siblings, I hope. Um, I hope. <laughs> and, yes. And, and obviously your book's going to be coming out uh, in the fall of 2018. And mm-hmm. um do you want to say anything else about how people can get it? In you can pre-order it on amazon.com. Okay. Um, you can contact me. Um, I have um, on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Sharon Celine. Uh, I also have a website, uh, Dr. Sharon Celine, where I have a blog and videos. I'm in the process of reconstructing That's that Dr. right Sharon now. DrSharonCeline.com. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. DrSharonCeline.com. And, um, those are the best ways to follow, where, follow me. I'm, where's your practice located? My practice area? is located in Northampton, Massachusetts. I am also uh, available for coming to speak to parent groups or schools. Um, I have a couple trainings lined up this fall and some talks. I'm doing one on anxiety at a, I, at a pediatric practice here in Northampton. I give several talks a year and I'll be doing a parent training group on um, parenting uh, kids with ADHD. So um, please contact me. Stay in touch. It would be great. Yes. And thanks so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed this interview. And yeah, I hope this was helpful for everyone, all of our listeners out there. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. And um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe on our YouTube channel and check out attentiondifferent.org. Thanks.